Good day, everyone. This is Harlan Hudson from Chargebacks 911, FI 911. Thank you for joining us today for this edition of FinTalks. Today, we're going to be talking about a very important problem and solutions regarding authorization fraud. Today, we're going to be talking about authorization fraud and card testing and the significant impact it has on financial institutions, their merchants, and consumers. But what is authorization fraud exactly and how can uh, financial institutions and merchants unite to detect, prevent, and eliminate this costly and maddening problem? So, I'm, I'm really, really fortunate today to have a couple of great guests with me, and uh, they're going to help us unpack this, this problem and hopefully come to some solutions. So, Scott, welcome to our, our podcast here. Introduce yourself and let us know uh, where you work and what you do, and uh, let's, let's take it from there. Yeah, definitely. Harlan, thank you. Uh, very excited to be here. Uh, definitely very passionate about uh, this topic. Uh, it's Scott McLaughlin. I'm with KeyBank. I work in the integrated payment space. I handle and manage third-party strategy uh, for KeyBank uh, in the, the acquiring segment. So in essence, I'm going out and aligning the bank with third-party software solutions uh, that could be a, a payment gateway in essence that our merchants would be using. Um, so that's my role and, and uh, yeah, definitely excited to talk about the, the topic. Well, welcome. We're glad you're here. I also want Will Blay to introduce himself. Will. Where are you from? What do you do? And uh, how are you going to help us today? Yeah, thanks, Harlan. And hello, everyone. So Will Blay here. I come from Microsoft. I work on a, a product internally we have called the Microsoft Fraud Protection Solution. So this is a um, AI-driven fraud detection solution focused around payments fraud, boosting authorization rates, account fraud, all that good stuff. So um, really looking forward to unpacking this topic a bit more and diving into how, how financial institutions can leverage tools and some best practices uh, to mitigate fraud for themselves and, and their constituents. So really happy to be here. Thank you, Will. I'm Harlan Hudson. I've been with Chargebacks 911 for seven years. I do strategic partnerships and work with financial institutions, enterprise uh, retail brands, and I'm excited to be here to talk about this timely topic. The, the title of our talk today is You Failed the Test. Now, what does that mean exactly? So one of the main, I would say, indicators of authorization fraud is card testing. Um, Scott, talk to me a little bit about what you've seen in this arena. How, how have you uncovered the fact that your merchants and, of course, your bank itself has in fact been impacted by authorization fraud. It ha does it have to do with card testing? Yeah, so, so in essence, KeyBank has unfortunately seen uh, a number of instances uh, of card testing 
taken place. So in essence, what, what's happening is uh, a merchant that has a website in an e-commerce space, um, a fraudster will in essence go to their website and have lost or stolen cars that they want to test to, to in essence find out if they're good cards or not so they can sell them. So they'll figure out how to get into a website um, and there's multiple different ways a fraudster can hack into a website. But once they get into that website, they go in and start running $0 offs, penny offs, $1 offs. It could be an authorization attempt for any dollar amount. But what they do is they go in and they create a bot and they start running authorization attempts. And it could be authorization attempts, attempts within a very, very short period of time. So what happens is the merchant doesn't realize the off fraud is happening. And the only way they find out about it is when they get their statement for the following month. And a great example is uh, a merchant that could run, let's say a hundred transactions in a month. All of a sudden they have 300 or $400,000 uh, uh, authorization attempts coming through and their processing bills, $50,000 all of a sudden. So it's, it's huge impact to, to merchants and uh, in essence could come back and be huge loss, losses for financial institutions as well. Wow. That's a huge, that's a huge difference between a hundred transaction and then, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars potentially. So, so, so Will, talk to me about authorization fraud. Is card testing the only manifestation of this? Are there other ways that, that they're going to be, uh, that, that authorization fraud is in fact a problem? And, uh, and how does that work? What, what's the, what's the, you know, sort of motivation behind this? Why would a fraudster even care about a zero, dollar or one penny authorization? What are they trying to accomplish? Yeah, so certainly I think card testing, right, is kind of thought of the kingpin, if you will, with authorization fraud. But to your point, Harlan, there are other types that we see that we can come on to. Um, but to answer your question, though, I mean, obviously, as Scott kind of touched on as well, the big reason why fraudsters are doing this is, you know, they go out, they obtain stolen card information. And they want to test and see, okay, are these cards still active? Are they still good? And of course, if you're going to be running $0 offs or $1 offs, you're you know, much more likely to get by someone who's maybe checking their bank statement, or maybe they only check their bank statement once every few weeks. And they might only see, you know, you're less likely, obviously, to see a 0 or $1 charge versus a $500 charge coming through. But ultimately, they want to test, are these cards still active? Or are they still good to go? And then once they pass the test on, um, you know, on, let's say that $1 off, they can then go to an electronics site or maybe a jeweler, right? They can go buy items or goods or services that have much, much higher value to them or much higher resale value to them. So in theory, that is kind of what they're striving to do with these different forms of card testing. But we do see other forms of authorization fraud. It can be um, as Scott also mentioned, you know, people using bots as a means to run a very 
uh, high volume of transactions. Um, and, and that's where, you know, getting information on a, on a customer's device when they're checking out can be a really important piece of the puzzle um, to see, is this a human? Does this device exhibit human-like traits or qualities? Because definitely bots, um, let's see, Tor networks, uh, VPNs, right? These, some of these different ways in which fraudsters are, you know, working to mask themselves are some of the more, you know, ways or some of the more, I guess you'd say, characteristics we're seeing be associated with fraudulent transactions, aside from just going out and attempting a, a large number of offs uh, through card testing. So, so the fraudsters, they, they compile these card numbers. Uh, yep. Presumably they're buying them on, on the, you know, the dark, so-called dark web, right? So they, they have all these, these, these card numbers and then they gain access to a specific merchant's web store, checkout page, whatever that is. Is there a profile of merchants uh, that of mer a merchant that is more likely to see this type of fraud than others? I mean, is, are, are we more likely to see it for, uh, you know, something like, uh, you know, electronics, or is it going to be something that's, that's sort of out of the space a little bit? And, and so there's, there's not the tendency for uh, a robust fraud prevention program to be in place. Yeah, I'll, I'll give my thoughts. I'd love to hear, hear what Scott has to think about this. But from my perspective, everyone is at risk because even if you aren't selling, let's say, the really attractive, high-value resale items, right? Your website, though, can still be used as kind of the, the tester website, if that makes sense, right? Yep. Go somewhere where you think, uh, where you think the website you know, might not have the strongest fraud tools in place, um, you know, or, or they just might not be that aware of fraud those are oftentimes where fraudsters kind of sniff out those vulnerabilities to do the card testing and then go purchase something, um, as mentioned, from more high value resale, uh, you know, website or retailer. So in my opinion, everybody, unfortunately, is at risk here. No one is, is absolved of this because, you know, in, in a fraudster's agenda, every type of merchant kind of falls somewhere on that, on that line, right, of where they can use that website either to test cards mm. or to obtain products or services. But as mentioned, Scott, I'd love to hear you know, your thoughts from the FI side, if you've seen your merchants kind of spanning the gamut, um, unfortunately, run into these scenarios. Yeah, I 100% agree with you. It's literally the gamut. It could be an e-commerce online retailer selling a product or a service. Um, you know, we've seen instances of medical billing companies having having fraud issues and, and a medical billing company where in essence you need to go to a website and enter into the front end of the site um so literally it's a business type so in essence anybody any merchant with a uh, customer facing website uh, could be at risk. And uh, the other scary piece is even if you think your site is, is tough to get into, um, I relate to it as, as somebody wanting to, in essence, break into your house. If they want to get into your house, they're going to get into your house. If they want to get into your site, they're going to potentially figure out a way to get into your site. So 
it really it really spans across the board from a business type standpoint. Yeah, that that's a great point. I think the the idea here is that they're trying to gain information. It's really almost like an intel operation, right? They're trying to gain in, uh, information so that they can really go after the big the big purchases, the big money, whatever that whatever their particular bent is on that. It sounds like they're just getting information in most cases. You know what's interesting, Will, to me is um, like when I go to get gas, oftentimes I'll get a temporary off on my, on my debit card statement, for example, that of course falls off after the actual purchase has been made and it's, you know, everything's been, been processed and settled. Uh, is that potentially, are people seeing these offs come, you know, on their statement and then drop off. So they get a little bit used to it. Or what What do you think of that? Because, you know, if I see something that I think is fraud, I'm on the phone with my issuer, like right away. What it, it, are, are consumers just sort of oblivious to this? Or are they just not looking at their statement? Or what what is what is happening in that in the in relation to that? Yeah, I mean, that's kind of the million dollar question, right? I I mean, speaking for, for myself, I, I check my, I guess maybe it's partially a nature of being in this space, right? But I, I check my bank statement, you know, regularly, uh, you know, almost on, on a daily basis, let's say, right? So for me, I'd like to think myself as a consumer um, and sounds like yourself, Harlan, if someone was trying to use my card to attempt, um, you know, some sort of transaction, I, I would see it within a day and go, okay, this isn't right and get on it immediately. But I genuinely think, though, a lot of people, they're not checking, you know, they don't think to check their bank statement on a daily or even weekly basis. And I think there's more people than we than we would think um, that do that. And then even if there are folks that do check it maybe once a week, kind of like we said at the, at the beginning, if it is for a $1 charge, it is, I think, reasonable to assume that folks will just browse over that. They're not going to, you know, notice that as a big dent in their bank account. So there is, uh, I don't know, I, I suppose it's, It'd be a good uh, a good research study into consumer behavior, right? And how often folks are checking either <laughs> their bank accounts and what it may be. But I think it's a combination probably of most people don't check them as often as we think they do. And if you are checking it and there's these you know one dollar offs in there, you're obviously yep. less inclined to notice that than than a large substantial transaction. Um, yep. So that would be my initial kind of take on it. So so. Yeah. Talk to me about, Scott, talk to me a little bit about how you detect, how, how can we detect? Clearly, consumers are not our best, uh, you know, <laughs> uh, point of, of detection here, right? Consumers are, they're not looking at their statements. So, so how are we detecting this uh, from, from happening? What are, what are the, what are the steps that, and, and you don't have to go into anything proprietary here, but what, wh how do we know if this is happening? You know, it's, it's a very interesting problem. And it sounds like the fraudsters are doing everything they can to mask what's actually happening. Yeah, I, I do not like fraudsters. They are definitely very smart. Um, and I absolutely agree with Will. Um, you know, consumers, cardholders, they may not be checking their statement. I'm, I'm the same way. If I see a $1 off uh, to, to a business that I've never been to, I'll literally reach out to that business to, to let them know 
but I think there there's really two levels from a detection standpoint um, and potentially a prevention standpoint. One would be at the FI level. So making sure that you're aligned with your processor and potentially third-party companies if needed to make sure that you've got good, solid fraud detection and fraud prevention platforms in place. So that that's one on the FI side. And then number two, what we focus on here at KeyBank is really making sure that our clients and our merchants are aware um, of the potential issue and of the, of the potential for very big losses in the space. Um, so what we're doing is going out and, and letting clients know that they absolutely need to set up fraud parameters. So making sure that uh, they're requiring AVS, making sure that they're absolutely setting a minimum transaction amount. So in essence, if a transaction uh, is, is attempted at, at a certain dollar level, let's say like under $5, that transaction will decline or that auth will decline. Um, so making sure that merchants are setting up every single fraud parameter uh, that they possibly can from a software standpoint to detect uh, the, those authorization attempts, that's really the best way to do it. Oh, that, that's great advice. I love that because, for example, a, a uh, fuel provider would, wouldn't necessarily want to do the minimum, uh, you know, sort of transaction authorization amounts, uh, but, but anybody else should probably implement that, right? So, so unless you have a business where that authorization takes place as a pre-auth to a, a transaction that is still to be determined or a transaction amount still to be determined, they should be doing these, these simple things. So now we're getting into kind of a multi-layered strategy, right? Will, we're talking now about, hey, the merchants have responsibility here. That, that's important right? But, but then beyond that, the merchants can do all these things. And still these bots are going to get through, they're going to get through some of these, these, uh, these filters. What, what's, what's a, an additional layer that needs to go on top here? In my opinion, it all starts with machine learning, right? In, in today's day and age, or I guess historically how things have ran is with fraud systems or fraud solutions, you know, merchants use tools that relied a lot on rules. So, you know, X problem comes through and then go create Y rule and yay, this, this version of fraud is solved. But as we've kind of been touching on throughout the, throughout the podcast, fraudsters are extremely smart. They're extremely intuitive and they change with the times. They're not static whatsoever. So solutions that merchants are using or that, you know, FIs are making aware to their merchants really need to be using some form of machine learning because obviously with machine learning, the tool is going to adopt. It's going to learn in real time. It's going to understand what merchants traffic looks like. And as different fraud trends emerge on a global basis, as merchants grow and expand their you know, products, they move into maybe new geos, your customers are going to look different, but the tool will be able or you know, tools using machine learning will be able to adopt with those changes. And I think that's really key because you know, the merchants we speak to, right? Merchants don't want to be sitting around all day putting these manual processes in place for fraud. They want to go out and do things that lead to growing the business, whether it's sales and marketing efforts, you know, 
freeing up folks' time to do things that are revenue generators, not sitting around all day, manually looking at transactions, you know, setting fraud rules or tolerances. So that's why I think machine learning is such a key element in today's day and age, not just because it's more accurate, of course, which is the most important thing here at detecting fraud, but from a a day-to-day operational standpoint too, it also is going to free up merchants' time to not get super bogged down with worrying about fraud on a day-to-day basis. Yeah, that that's that's great advice. Uh, and as a follow-up question, so 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 many merchants are worried about, especially e-commerce merchants. And when we start getting into the digital goods space, right? Like mm-hmm. we're talking about gaming, we're talking about you know uh, streaming, content streaming, those kinds of things. Already, the a lot of these transactions are low dollar value anyway, and there's there's just millions of them, right? Maybe millions of them every week or every month or whatever. And so they're really concerned, though, about about uh, declines, right? They're they're d- concerned that if we put too much in place to prevent these types of things. Their, their authorization rate is going to go down, and it may be due to false declines. How do we balance that out? How do we balance out, you know, sort of preventing authorization fraud, but at the same time, not, not kicking out good transactions? Yeah, I mean, you, you hit the point on the head. That is such, such an important thing to think about. And I think, once again, it comes back to the tool, right? With machine learning and when with good machine learning, you know, systems will kind of rely on this idea of what we like to call profit efficiency, essentially, right? So how, are, how is the tool going to compute risk in real time to, yes, of course, stop chargebacks, but to your point, Harlan, um, let as many good orders through as possible. Because we've right. actually seen with a lot of customers, you know, or just merchants we speak to, they might say, oh, yeah, you know, our chargeback rate's really low. We don't have a fraud problem, but they have a massive false positive problem. And I think it's been researched numerous times again, how false positives can actually be a lot more detrimental to a business than chargebacks. Because let's say I'm a first time customer checking out with someone. Um, I get wrongfully declined. Then, you know, great. I'll go take my business elsewhere. And who knows what my lifetime value could have been, right? I could have ended up spending thousands of dollars with that merchant over the course of my life. But since you know that there is a poor experience I had as a customer and I take my business elsewhere, that's a lot of potential lost revenue on the table. So it goes back to once again, though, with really good, accurate machine learning, um, things like that are taken into account, not just stopping fraud, but how can a merchant optimize for profitability by keeping your false positive rates as low as possible? Oh, that, that's excellent. That's excellent. And in a minute, I want to talk a little bit about how uh, chargebacks uh, can actually be part of the process of this balancing act. But Scott, tell me a little bit about what you've seen regarding these, you know, these very specific uh, problems of, uh, you know, uh, false positives, you know, the declines, as opposed to the, you know, sort of this, we want to maximize the profit, we want to get as many authorizations through. Uh, and and there's that there's that balancing act, do you, do you have a lot of interactions with customers that are, are in that boat where they're saying, I, I'm just letting everything through. And so they end up getting hammered. 
Yeah, no, it's you are are a hundred percent spot on, and I totally agree with Will. It's 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 a dance. It's it's a balancing act. Um, a lot of times you can you can make merchants aware, and they know that they they need to to put something into place or potentially need to put something in place. They know the risk, uh, but in essence. They, they don't take the time to look at it, study it, and, and really figure out what makes sense for their, their business than implement something. Um, because at the end of the day, they don't want to lose business. But on the flip side, they're risking opening up the, the, the front door and letting anything go through so they can potentially go out of the business. I mean, that, that's how serious it is. Um, if you think about it, you you could have a small business with with the website, and if all of a sudden they they get fifty or seventy five thousand dollars in processing fees, and they have to pay that, uh, technically technically they're responsible for that. That could put somebody out of business. Um, so it's it's absolutely a balancing act. Merchants, uh, you know, I recommend that again, like Will was saying, using. Uh, uh, a rules-based and then a machine-based fraud detection, fraud prevention platform, and then setting uh, parameters on the gateway side to detect detect fraud. Um, And really knowing knowing the average ticket um, and understanding their business and really understanding what's coming through and, and making sure that they're comfortable. So in essence, they're not letting everything flow through. Um, but in, on the flip side, they're not losing business because they've got everything set too tight. Right. And, and, and that idea of the customer experience, the user experiences, I think key in this whole problem. And, and I think the, the analogy you used, it's a dance, right? Because uh, the fraudsters are adapting, you know, it's like they're moving, you're moving. It's this dance between how do we balance these things out where we're going to stop the bad guys, but we got to let the good guys in as much as possible. And, you know, and, and when it comes to chargebacks, what we see is that oftentimes it's better to, you know, let a, let more transactions through and handle them at a stage that is post-authorization. That would be the pre-chargeback stage. That would be, you know, where we could use, for example, pre-chargeback uh, alerts that where we could refund, for example, a a specific transaction that was uh, that was coming through and was actually fraud. You can you can you can loosen those filters as long as you have a back end solution where where you're preventing the the chargeback because you don't want to take the hit of you know, the chargeback stats, the threshold stats, the fraud stats, all that on on that very important uh, chargeback to transaction ratio. And there are tools on the back end that can help to balance these two out. Because again, you want to be careful to, to let in the good guys and keep out the bad guys. But on occasion, the more you do that, you are going to have true fraud. So we recommend that you look seriously at pre-chargeback prevention and and refund tools to to uh, help with that 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 balancing act. So so, Will, give us uh, a few 
insights into how merchants can implement tools for, first of all, monitoring the network. Because, right, velocity is a big thing here. We've got, uh, that's one of the uh, velocity engines can can begin to detect, oh my gosh, we've got, you know, 10,000 <laughs> authorizations coming in. We, we, we usually get 500. So, you know, there, there are specific tools that, that help in this process. Yeah, absolutely. And velocity certainly is a very important data point. But I guess when you're thinking about pre-authorization fraud screening, aside from machine learning, as we kind of touched on, it also goes back to the tool or solution you're using. What is the overall size of the network that it's pulling from as well? Because ultimately, machine learning is only as good as the data you feed into it and train it on. So that's another really key element to think about, too, is how big is the network that the tool is running off of? Is it global? Is it multi-vertical? Um, you know, what is it able to detect fraud and emerging fraud um, patterns on that global basis? Because oftentimes, too, merchants think, okay, I, I only do, you know, let's say I only do transactions with U.S.-based consumers. Great. But at the same time, that doesn't mean that your fraud isn't going to come from overseas. Fraud rings, fraud organizations, people are always working together on a global basis. So even if, yes, you are a merchant who only does domestic traffic, it's still really important to have a view of fraud on a global basis because, you know, you might have someone who's over in Eastern Europe masking themselves as a, you know, someone in the U.S. attempting to commit card fraud on your website. So that's another really key thing to think about um, in terms of uh, card fraud. And just one other thing too, Harlan, we haven't touched on yet, but something that we're seeing on the Microsoft side that folks should think about is where do the issuing banks come into all this? And are the tools and solutions that are being used able to work with issuing banks? Because we see a lot of scenarios where, you know, perhaps a merchant um, is being responsible, right? Or the FI is being responsible. They're giving their customers the tools and means to accurately detect fraud. And, you know, fraud checks are being done up front. That's great. Um, but oftentimes what happens is that when the transaction gets to the issuing bank for the final authorization decision, you know, issuing banks don't have a lot of data necessarily on those transactions. And what happens is that they, are, are, they aren't making as informative decisions as possible. So what happens is that merchants, cardholders and the alike become collateral damage from something that historically they can't control. So what we've seen on our side is some ways in which there can be data sharing between fraud solutions and issuing banks to essentially enable the issuing banks to make more informed decisions on the transaction. So that way, when the authorization hits, um, their false positives are lower, their fraud rates are lower. And once again, if the issuing banks are making as good of decisions as possible, merchants are going to win, acquiring banks are going to win, and cardholders are going to win. That's another thing I just wanted to kind of slip in there. That oh, know. that yeah, yeah, that that's great. And and I want to I want to throw that back to Scott because uh, KeyBank certainly has I think both sides of the house, right? So so Scott, how do you see this collaboration layer? Because it's really another layer of 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 working together, multi-layered uh, approach to defeating this problem. No, I, I, I totally agree. Um, issuing banks absolutely have to be uh, involved. The, that's, that's obviously a piece. And then 
um, like I talked about before, um, you know, on the acquiring side, which is a segment I'm in, um, you know, we have to, to make sure that from a risk standpoint that we've got everything set up with our processors, whether it be Element or Fiserv, uh, to make sure that they are notifying us. We're leveraging their platforms. Uh, we've got our third-party platforms in place that can help us monitor off attempts um, and help our merchants uh, detect it when, when and if it does come through. Uh, so yeah, the the uh, issuing banks uh, absolutely have to be involved with the acquiring banks uh, who need to to work better and uh, on a more uh, consistent basis uh, with clients and with merchants. Great, great. Uh, let's let's take a few questions. Uh, I have a question here: uh, Who ultimately has financial liability for this? That is a phenomenally awesome question. So <laughs> well, congratulations to the person who asked it. Yeah, definitely. Um, definitely a good question. So if you look at a, a merchant contract, um, in essence, uh, the way the merchant contracts are set up, there's typically either a personal guarantee on the merchant account or there's a corporate guarantee on the merchant account. And then let's say a merchant goes out of business and can't pay those fees. Then, then those fees are going to come back to uh, you guessed it, the bank. Uh, right. So in essence, if, if a merchant has uh, a big loss, uh, again, they get a bill for 50 to $75,000 and they can't pay it. Um, that could potentially go back to the merchant, uh, personally, if they, they have a PG in place, um, it could back, go back to the, the company if there's a corporate guarantee in place. And then ultimately it's going to fall back to the FI, um, yeah. because of the, of the way that that contract and that relationship with, with the car brands and the networks and the acquirers are set up. Yeah. So, so just to be clear, the FI would be in this case, the, the acquiring bank uh, that is, that is uh, processing, settling these, these transactions. So, so that, that's excellent information. So will, if the merchant ultimately is responsible um, for this, but then there's the, you know, the, possibility they might go out of business how, how do we how do we implement tools at the merchant level and the fi level and and taking in keeping in mind that there's a cost benefit analysis here right the merchant doesn't want to spend a lot of money on fraud tools uh and the acquirer you know wants to balance that out as well so as a as a third-party provider how how do you how do you counsel merchants and fis in this in this process related to that yeah it's a great question so maybe i mean and it can be viewed kind of both ways because either if you're the merchant you're obviously going to be directly using the tool and if you're the fi perhaps you're offering it out as a value add right to your customers or merchants to you know, keep existing customers happy or go out and win new business. But I think from an ROI perspective, the tool needs to illustrate and show how are you going to, one, first and foremost, keep my chargeback rates down. Second of all, how are you going to keep my false positive rates low? And then third, 
Um, also, how are you going to boost my bank, my bank authorization rates? Kind of that last piece I touched on, right? Where oh. how can I, how, how can the tool be so intuitive to where not only are you going to prevent me on, you know, stop fraud and let good, or, good orders through on the front end, but work with issuing banks to make sure that once again, I'm not being collateral damage in this process and that my off rates um, are staying very high and healthy. Um, and then kind of the fourth and final piece is cutting out any sort of manual work um, or cutting down manual work, right? If there's a, a big team today, maybe running fraud solutions or spending time on things like manual reviews, how can the tool um, you know, work to mitigate some of those processes and free up folks' time? So I suppose it's kind of, there's kind of four areas you think about. Two of them are more in the OPEX savings side. So cutting down chargebacks and cutting down manual workloads. And then two are kind of on the revenue boosting side. So yeah. um, decreasing false positives and then subsequently improving bank authorization rates. So, you know, folks usually think of fraud solutions as a cost center, or a cost of doing business. Um, you know, I'm seeing X amount of fraud and as, hey, as long as the tool I'm paying for will offset that, then yeah, that's fine with me. But we've seen on the Microsoft side, um, we you know some of our customers as well as our, our own business that actually if deployed properly, fraud tools can actually lead to a pretty substantial lift in revenue, um, which is yeah. a really exciting thing to think about. Yeah, yeah I'll, I'll tell you what, Harlan, I need to I need to bring Will on the call because that that was that was perfect. Um, my Will said it much better than, than I typically do. I mean, I am literally on on the phone or on calls with clients, just asking them, please put something in place. You've got to do it. I mean, that, a lot of times that's my conversation. Yep. And, and we don't want to use, uh, we're reluctant as, as providers to use fear. But in reality, if you're facing a $75,000 bill that you can't pay, you better be afraid, right? <laughs> you better be yeah. concerned about it. And, and fear properly placed or concern properly placed can lead to, you know, a mitigation of the risk. And that's what we're really talking about. Even on the chargeback side, guys, we're really talking about helping in a couple of different ways. Number one, we want to, we want to uh, obviously uh, uh, refund any fraudulent, uh, you know, authorization fraud type chargebacks before they become a chargeback. Because if you get too many of those chargebacks, if you get you know, upside down on your chargeback to transaction uh, ratio, you could actually face what they call a TMF or terminated merchant file. So even if you can pay the, the bill, you might lose your processing, right? So you want to make sure you're not getting upside down on those chargebacks in terms of your accounts and your, your threshold. So that's number one. Number two, we can actually feed back to providers like Microsoft with you know, we're, we're agnostic, but we have a partnership with Microsoft. We can feed back that chargeback data and they can tweak the, the, um, the uh, fraud tools that are in place to better prevent the fraudsters from getting in, but also to allow the good guys to go through because that is a critical piece of this whole dance. So Will, you're you did a great job describing the entire process. So we look at it as end to end from the very moment this happens, this, this fraudulent transaction 
uh, takes place to the to the very instance that we refund a, a fraudulent transaction or we're able to determine it's not fraudulent and we fight it and get the money back, there's an end-to-end solution in place. And this, this really requires a partnership across all of the entities we've talked about, from the merchant to the acquiring bank to the fraud provider to the chargeback provider. And, you know, we have a saying at Chargeback Time 1-1, uh, either become an expert or hire one. And it's impossible for everybody to be an expert on all of these things. So it's a it's a, it's a really important point. Um, do you guys have uh, Will any last comments? And then we're going to wrap this up. No, I, I really appreciate everyone's time, and I think Harlan, uh, you kind of hit the nail on the head there. It's it's really a, a unified front, right? It's using pre-authorization fraud tools to mitigate fraud at the onset, but ultimately. You know, there's always going to be chargebacks that get through. And then it's providers like yourself, post-transaction, fighting the chargeback. And as you mentioned, kind of having that flywheel of data and information going back and forth. So that way, you know, the, the data being used at, uh, to screen a transaction can be used to help fight a chargeback. And then simultaneously, the data used to fight a chargeback can be fed back into the tool on the pre-off side to get smarter and smarter and prevent more chargebacks from coming through. So um, total unified front there, but agree with everything you just said. But uh, no, I think that that covers it for me. So really enjoyed the conversation. Thank you to you and the CB911 folks and, and Scott for having us. And uh, hope everyone enjoyed the podcast. Yeah. Scott, any closing thoughts? Uh, yeah, definitely. Harlan, I, I, I totally agree. I, I tell folks to hire an expert um, versus trying to become one because obviously folks like... Uh, CB911 and, and yourself, you guys know exactly what you're doing. And I would tell FIs, uh, my advice is to, to uh, in essence, make sure you've got uh, your solutions in place to make sure you're covered from an FI standpoint. And then also uh, take it a, a few steps further and make sure your merchants are, are covered uh, from a fraud standpoint. And, and like Will said, and, and you said, Harlan, it's, it's a true end to end uh, process and you've got to manage the entire process from start to finish where you're going to have issues. That's right. So, all right. Thank you both for, for joining us. I just want to make a note to our listeners. We had, uh, some technical difficulties this morning. And so there was, uh, we were not able to uh, provide video for you. And uh, so we hope this audio podcast was helpful and uh, we wish you much success and uh, feel free to reach out to uh, either of the three of us. If you have questions, we'd love to talk with you. Uh, we could, uh, w- there, there's lots of ways we can collaborate and uh, prevent and, uh, and mitigate the risk associated with authorization fraud. Thank you so much, guys. Have a great day and uh, we'll talk soon.